Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 150. My name is Arvind. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPlanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooliman. Hi, everybody. This is definitely not the third time we're recording the intro. Because <laughs> I'm a professional. Yeah. yeah. 150, though. That's a big round number. That's uh, a long time for us to have been doing this podcast. Four years. It really is. <laughs> so, yeah. And we have a, a nice pod, well, hopefully a nice podcast for you. I guess it's for you to decide whether it's nice or not. But we have we have some content ready to discuss because uh, NHL free agency has, has come and it's not gone. It's still ongoing. Um, but, you know, obviously the first bit of free agency is the big flurry. And the Leafs made uh, a ton of moves. Mm-hmm. Not all of them seem inherently amazingly consequential uh, in terms of, you know, names or status of the players acquired. But, hey, we're here to break it down anyways. So, I mean, without any further ado, let's just get into what the Leafs have done over the past few days. Right. So the Leafs have made seven signings uh, in unrestricted free agency, which opened yesterday at noon. Uh, I'm speaking on July the 29th. Um, so that's pretty active. A lot of these signings were relatively small. That doesn't mean that they're not NHL significant, but they're not the kind of blockbuster deals that most people are going to be talking about coming out of unrestricted free agency. Um, obviously, there's nothing on a par with the Tavares signing a few years back, which was a blockbuster to end all blockbusters. The biggest one was in net. And so we'll start there with Peter Mrazek, who signed for three years, $3.8 million. Mr. Mrazek is 29. He was most recently with the Carolina Hurricanes, who kind of did a weird goalie swap. That always seems to happen at some point. In free agency, eh? Like, there's, like, a musical chairs thing, and teams just sort of flip goalies for whatever reason. Yeah, and, and it's just, it, it's a bit like shuffling deck chairs, right? Like, mm-hmm. a, a, somehow, it's a, everyone has, like, roughly the same caliber goalies, but they're just different dudes. Yeah, it's like, at, at a certain point, you just get tired of the guys that you have, and you're like, I would like a different set of problems, even if they're not much better. <laughs> and, yeah, and so, anyway, Carolina has Frederick Anderson now, who mm-hmm. signed for, by the way, two years at $4.5 million. Kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. We have Peter Mrazek, three years at three point eight. He had a strong backup performance last year in an admittedly tiny sample. 12 games. Yes. Yeah. And that's a, that's a theme with Morasic over the past few years. His health has not been 100%. Uh, last year it was a busted thumb. But even at his peak, he was more of a... I think he peaked, you can say, as a 1A goalie. Like, there was right. one point where he started more games than anyone else on Carolina. But by and large, he hasn't been that, that gold-plated starting goalie that most teams sort of dream about. I don't think he's ever started 50 games in a season. Um, mm-hmm. He's had some good years, though. Last year, he had actually a kind of preposterous rate of saves above expected. Um, 7.1 goals above expected in 12 games, which is just ridiculous. Like, that's yeah, kind of the Yeah, it's absolutely insane. Yeah. And, I mean, it's worth noting. We, we would often say, like, oh, you know, don't over-index on a playoff sample. He was terrible in the playoffs. Had, like, an 873 in the playoffs. Mm. And he only played two games because he was so bad. But two games, that's two games out of 14 he played the entire year. That's not, it's actually not insignificant. Yeah, and so that probably gives you a little bit of pause. He sort of half-seeded the net to Alex Andelkovic, who Mm -hmm. a lot of people thought was going to be the Hurricanes goalie of the future. The Hurricanes said, fuck that, and traded him to the Detroit Red Wings, who extended him. Uh, we'll talk probably more about this on the off-season survey pod that we'll do later this, well, later next month when the dust settles, but the Hurricanes always seem pretty cavalier about goaltending. They don't believe that, you know, you should get over, overly attached to any one of these guys, and that was the case with Mrazek. 
If I had their goaltending, I'd probably agree. Yeah. <laughs> it's sort of a chicken and egg thing, isn't it? Like, they don't <laughs> care that much about goalies. The goalies they get are bad and not worth caring about. Maybe not that. Yeah. Mrazek has yeah, been well, I mean, yeah. And it's certainly, they've been better the last couple years, right? Like, the last mm. couple years since the Hurricanes have, you know, kind of been a relatively consistent playoff team. Mm. Um, their goaltending, you know, hasn't been enough to sink them. And, of course, we all know they're very good at other things. Uh, beyond goaltending, although it remains to be seen how that will change with the loss of Dougie Hamilton. Anyways, we, I digress. We will, as Fulman said, we'll discuss this on a survey pod later in the summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for the Leafs, I mean, it seems reasonable. I, I, you know, from a team perspective, yeah, you would have liked to not have the third year, for example, right? right. Uh, you would have liked to, it to be three point five rather than three point eight. But you can always kind of pick these nits, and certainly there were other goalie bets made that make this seem eminently reasonable. Right. Jonathan Bernier wound up over $4 million a year on a two-year. Um, Chris Dreiger, who had a pretty hot little run for the Florida Panthers, signed with Seattle, three years at 3.5. Um, you know, higher up the market, Philip Grubauer signed for quite a bit of money. Mm. But I think And that... Darcy Kemper, the, the, the trade for Darcy Kemper was, was expensive. Right, yeah. And that was an interesting situation where Colorado lost Grubauer in free agency, had this very fine team and no goalies to put behind it. Sort of looked like they were saying, okay, we've got to get the best goalie available now. Yeah, I think that's a bit of a, we owe it to how to our team based on how good we are. Mm-hmm. That like, you know, we, we cannot possibly waste a year of McKinnon on at 6 million of, you know, Landeskog in late prime who they've, who they've you know, resigned of rent and his prime like we need we we can't risk having a bad goalie and of course you still risk having a bad goalie no matter how much you pay for any goalie ever but they try to you know ensure themselves to the extent possible right and so that made a certain amount of sense from where they were sitting and Morazic made sense from where the Leafs were sitting you have Jack Campbell who performed quite well last year has had some good partial seasons in the past but has never again been a number one goalie in capital right. letters. And so this provides some insurance. If Campbell isn't that great, Mrazek has at least some capacity to carry the load. Um, he's not as expensive as a bona fide starter would have been, but it's the kind of guy that you can pair with Campbell and think, okay, we're not totally screwed if Campbell A gets hurt or B turns back into a pumpkin. And yeah. Yeah. Further to that, if Campbell is terrible this year, they can cut him loose and say, well, we still have someone. If Campbell is so good that the Leafs can't afford him, then they can again go let him seek his fortune because they still have Morazic. So it's sort of the timing of the, the both ways. contracts. Yeah, it, it's fairly synergistic in that sense. And I think that's smart. It gives the Leafs some leverage with respect to Campbell. Um, kind of, as you said, regardless of how this season goes. Yeah. Right. We're, we're not in a situation where there's absolutely you know no one on the roster who can even approximate a tent, part of a tandem. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, like, you know, if, if Mrazek is terrible this year, maybe we feel a lot less confident about that, but at least at this point, it seems like he'll probably be an okay, at least, goaltender uh, during that time. Right. And, you know, I won't pretend to have scouted Peter Mrazek. I won't pretend that it would make any difference if I had, because scouting right. goaltenders is a very niche art. But from what I read about him, he's considered athletic but inconsistent. I think I'll most goalies are inconsistent if they're not named Luongo or Lundqvist, but whatever. Uh, he's not all that big by modern NHL standards, which is all about size in goaltending. He's 6'1". But all the same, it seems like exactly the kind of bet that made sense for the Leafs to make in terms of putting someone who was 
more than a pure backup, less than a starter for salary cap reasons in the tandem with Jack Campbell. So yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm fine with this and it makes a lot of sense. Pretty much. Uh, the one thing I'll note is that Mrazic's, um goals saved above expected, like by hockey viz anyways, and I'm assuming also by the evolving hockey's stats. Um, it, it took it really it took a turn for the better when he got to Carolina. Mm. And I know these do purport to adjust for quality. It, it does always make me a little concerned when you see a, a marked change when a guy goes to a certain team. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially when the team has the reputation of being as smart as Carolina. Um, now, that's not to say Mrazic never had success prior to that. He did in, in Detroit, in like kind of late stage Detroit, no less. Right? When they're holding on to that playoff streak. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it, that's something to kind of be mindful of to to some extent mm-hmm. uh, right, so he had a couple really awful his, his last full season in detroit was terrible his last partial season in detroit and spent some time in philly was terrible but i repeat myself by saying philly <laughs> philly's not allowed to have good goaltenders the funniest thing was carter hart being good for exactly one year and everyone was like oh finally this will be resolved for them and then he said just kidding and i think he had an 870 this year but you know. yeah hart was like almost impressively bad mm. in the sense where it's like, you know, I, I don't even know how you can do that. Right. It's like, <laughs> it, it feels like, and this is obviously not the case, but like, it feels like if you just put a random person in net, they would somehow do better. Yeah. And you know, it's not quite there, but at the same time, it's like you only get enough rope to be as bad as Carter Hart was by mm. having a track record. That's why you see it so rarely because you have to have been good that the team is going to keep trying. Yeah, uh, in exactly. spite of how terrible you've been, <laughs> like normally you lose your job, um, at the point that he's reached. So, uh, Godspeed to them. Anyway, yeah, the, the goalie musical chairs went around. The Leafs got a perfectly reasonable bet here, and I think that it's, yes, it's in par. And that concludes the Leaf signings who I have watched play at least five games. <laughs> yeah, we talked about this beforehand, and you know, speaking in large principles of this podcast, since we're on episode 150, we try not to bullshit you about how many times we've seen these players. And in the case of several of these guys, it's not going to be a ton. Right. So we are firmly in scouting the stat line territory mm-hmm. when it comes to more or less everyone else on the who we're going to discuss. Yes. And that starts with Michael Bunting. Now, Michael Bunting, I actually had heard about. Uh, sort of through a friend of a friend thing. He's from Scarborough, which is pretty cool. I think people are always excited for a hometown boy. Uh, by his own account... Until they get paid $11 million. That's where it goes wrong. Yeah, but um, by his own account, he took less money to play in Toronto, uh, which is awfully nice of him. Extended pause while we all think about someone else. All right. <laughs> uh, he took two years at $950,000. He's going to be 26 in September. He's a left wing. He broke into the NHL full-time about four months ago. At the end of March, with the Arizona Coyotes, he had 10 goals, 3 assists, and so that's 13 points in 21 games. Which is a good start. He shot 26%. That seems reasonable. Yeah, <laughs> that's a thing that nobody does uh, for any extended period, but that's okay. Um, he's a pest by most accounts. He's a bit of a rat. He's a bit belligerent. He goes through the dirty areas and causes a little bit of chaos, and he can finish a little bit. He's not huge, but he is solid on his skates. Again, I'm 
reporting what I've read in terms of scouting reports on him. And in the Leaf streams, I think it's pretty clear that Michael Bunting takes the first line left wing job and runs away with it and delivers terrific value on a $950,000 contract. Mm-hmm. That would be nice. I'm not saying that's impossible, but this is the kind of bet that you make when you're capped out. Right. Which is, this is a guy who has not yet played in his 30th NHL game, and again, he's about to be 26. This is not some lead pipe cinch. This isn't even Alex Galchenyuk 2.0, because Alex Galchenyuk, by the time he got here, had played 500 NHL games and scored over 100 NHL goals. Right, and I've seen people kind of compare the two, mm-hmm. uh, at least superficially. Um, and also, I've seen like other Galchenyuk comparisons to, for example, Josh Hosang, who we'll get into again. Mm-hmm. Um, and like it's worth, you know, just restating the point Fulman made. Alex Galchenyuk was a reclamation project in, in many senses, but there was also a lot more to bank on. There was a lot more uh, of an idea of like, okay, here's what this guy could be, because at one point he was a useful NHL player. Mm-hmm. Right, he was always one with flaws, but you, he was useful nonetheless. With Bunting, you know that has yet to be established, and I don't even really mean this as a criticism of Bunting or of the Leafs, um, but I think it's worth pointing out. This is just the reality when you spend nine hundred fifty thousand on on players. Mm-hmm. You are not getting, you know, you're not getting a guy who's consistently scored twenty goals for nine hundred fifty k. At least not consistently, mm-hmm. right? You might get that occasionally with a guy like Jason Spezza at the tail end of his career. You might get that. Um, where, I don't know, some, some guy gets undervalued for whatever reason, signs a few short-term deals, and then explodes on your watch. And maybe it was foreseeable. Um, I guess, like, Jonathan Marchstow has probably done that at some point in his career. Maybe Carter Hagee is, is the new version of that. But generally speaking, when you are sp- spending this little money on a player, they have flaws. Otherwise, they would be commanding more, right? As much as Bunting um, may have taken less to, to come to Toronto, if a team was offering him $4.5 million, I doubt he's saying, yeah, I'll take 20% of that. Mm-hmm. Right? So, again, this is not really a criticism of, of bunting himself as a player. It's just, like, the reality is you do not get cost certainty, or you don't get certainty about uh, how good a player is. You don't get certainty about uh, how he's going to fit into your roster when you are at this level of the market, at least generally speaking. Right. And so what Bear was mentioning, this is a perfectly good bet. It's 950 k That's not much in NHL terms. There's very little downside risk in this signing in and of itself. If yes. he blooms as a first-line left wing, great. We get this year and next at a big discount. That's terrific for us. The problem isn't so much what this is, which is totally cool, as what it kind of means, which is a bit of a strain on the roster. Now, the Leafs probably aren't 100% done. No. They have about $3.5 million assuming that they're willing to run a skeleton roster without uh, healthy scratches. Uh, That's enough to get somebody, at least Galchenyuk, maybe Thomas Tatar. They were in on Brandon Saad, although eventually the contract that he signed would have been out of their range. So obviously he signed it somewhere else. But if the idea is we're going to go into next season with Michael Bunting expected to do this, that's a bit of a problem. He's replacing Zach Hyman who is just established as a better player. Now, there is, of course, a scenario where Bunting hits it out of the park and where he makes good on some of those Brad Marchand comparisons. To some right, and, and certainly, yeah. you know, if he gets the chance to play with Matthews and Marner, you know, you pay those guys in part so you can cheap out on the other guy next to them and hopefully still get really good production. Exactly. And that's, again, that's not a bad bet to make. It's just we've seen that 
it doesn't always work, mm-hmm. which which is fine. It like the, the expectation should not be for Kyle Dubas to bat a thousand on these nine hundred fifty k guys, right? Like that's an insane expectation. Mm-hmm. But as Fulman was saying, the the issue is that we're in a situation where if this guy busts, there is not a ton behind him in the sense that like there's very few people who we can be kind of confident can step into that role and not be a passenger and that's important because we can't just rely on Matthews and Marner in that line and the same is true of Tavares and Nina we need them not to be good we need them to be great we need them to be one of the 10 best lines in the league because our depth has effectively zero offense mm-hmm. and we'll get to that as well so this is um this is more or less this is foreseeable unless we made a kind of pretty dramatic move and it seemed clear early on that that wasn't going to be the case certainly not for any of the core four forwards maybe there was an outside shot of a riley move but i would i personally don't expect it because i think the leafs just really like riley and that's that's just where we are right we had zach hyman on an incredibly valuable deal we no longer have that and that was foreseeable and it's it's insane to expect us to have replaced him for anything uh better Mm -hmm. right and this is Again, not to belabor this point, this is why this playoff loss sucked so much. Because it was clear that, barring some miracle, it, this team was probably not getting better in terms of skater talent. Yeah, and you know what? I'll say this once, and then I will try not to belabor it over and over again, because we'll just all start crying. But last year was as good a shot as the Leafs are probably going to have at the Cup in some time. That doesn't mean that their current chances are zero, mm-hmm. not by any means. It just means... The combination of the players that they had on the contracts that they had and the division they were in was an opening. And, and where they were on the age curve, right? Like mm-hmm. You're getting the early part of Matthews Marner's prime. You're getting the late part of Brody Muzzin's primes, mm-hmm. right? Like TJ Brody and Jake Muzzin are probably not going to be as good this year as they, they were last year. And that's not me expecting them to fall off a cliff. It's just they'll probably just be a little bit worse because they're, you know, that they're at that age where that happens. Right. And... You look at the division. Oh, and John Tavares, too. Yeah, yeah I forgot about him. Of course, him. you know, most prominently. And you can say, you know, there was bad luck. We've dissected that loss enough times. It's just, that's an opportunity we didn't cash in on. And yep. so now we're in the po- at the point of hoping, okay, we need one of these to work out. Or we need some other big upgrade that's going to be coming down the pike. And I know that some people are going to say, okay, man, you guys are a buzzkill. And we are. We aspire to do that. But... That 3.5-ish million that the Leafs have doesn't really guarantee them anything. If you look at who's left there in terms of scoring left wings, it's not a row where you get a lot of sure things. Thomas Tatar is at the top of that market right now, and this is a guy who was healthy scratch repeatedly in the playoffs. Right, and, and if, you're, if you've subscribed to the idea that playoff hockey is different than regular season hockey, um, don't look up uh, Tatar's <laughs> playoff stats versus his regular season stats. Yeah, that's not going to make you feel good. And so you can be at a point where you don't have a lot of options in free agency. Maybe then you look at trade. But the Leafs don't have a ton of great tradable assets either, as something that we've discussed. They have their first next year. And we've already just experienced the pain of not picking in the first round. Right, so... and it's also... This is another thing that we'll come back to discuss maybe in the future, but this problem also stems... This is not just a... Um, problem where like oh the Leafs lost Zach Hyman and we don't we're capped out so we can't uh, do anything to to replace him. What great teams are able to do and what 
teams that have sustained success are able to do is they bring guys who are by definition underpaid because the CBA mandates it, otherwise known as ELCs. Mm -hmm. And the Leafs have not drafted well from, I guess I'd say, 2015 to 2018, at least not in the sense of really drafting a lot of NHL contributors aside from the obvious picks. I I guess Marner wasn't necessarily an obvious pick, but like the blue chip picks of, you know, picking fourth and then first overall. Uh, So that is coming back to bite us now, because if you have a, just someone who doesn't even have to be that good, just is a a reasonable, like an average NHL player on an ELC, well, that's providing actually quite a bit of value. Mm Mm-hmm. So, so, I mean, that brings us back around to Michael Bunting, who, again, this is fine in its own right. This might even work out. It's just the fact that we're hoping for this much from this particular player is sort of a reflection of a lot of the problems that the Leafs are dealing with right now. And so I think that he is illuminating. If he turns out to be just sort of uh, a nasty kind of rat-like presence who can chip in a few goals. I would love to have someone like that with Matthews and Marner. And there is certainly a scenario where we're happy we got Michael Bunting. There's one other thing I wanted to mention, which was he's a former Sault Ste. Marie Greyhound. <laughs> and, you know, like, it's it's sort of a funny meme at this point, but it also bears mentioning Kyle Dubas likes players that he knows. He likes people that he knows. He hired Sheldon Keefe at every level. The list of people that he's hired who have some connection to either the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds or just the town of Sault Ste. Marie is really long at this point. Muzzin, Campbell, Sandine, Bunting, um, obviously Sheldon Keefe. Uh, It's just, I think he gets a lot of credit in certain quarters for being the analytics GM and being sort of the new ways of thinking. And he is in some ways, but he goes back to the well of who he knows a lot and it's too much of a trend to be denied at this point i don't think it doesn't mean that these moves are bad it just means that it clearly plays a role in who he decides to pursue yeah exactly um and again like i i don't want to overstate the case and be like oh you know kyle dubas is being nepotistic or anything like that i mean the, the reality is there's a ton of hockey players out there Uh, if you were just trying to base things on NHL samples alone, it would be ludicrous, Mm -hmm. especially with someone like Bunting. He has 26 games in a weird season where he only faced, you know, maybe five or six other teams, Mm -hmm. right? That's not nearly enough data to be certain on it. So you want to have some more, and that includes going back years and years and years, right? Because that is still data, even if we would discount it slightly because of development. Yeah, you know, this happens everywhere in hockey. You know, you see it all the time. There's someone in the room who can say, you know, I know that kid, he's good. Um, You see it even in scouting. I I noticed the Leafs drafted Artur Akhtiamov's backup, who was a goalie Mm -hmm. they drafted the year before. And I'm sure as much as anything, that was a reflection of, we were looking at him and then we saw this other kid. You know, and and that's just sort of how it goes. And so there's... There's obviously an element of that in the Bunting signing and several others like it. I like the signing. I want to be clear because I worry that I've sounded negative. This is good to me. It's We're just, not negative about Bunting. It's just yeah. like, I think it's just, the, it, there's no way to honestly analyze the Leafs without saying this, is that the Leafs are not in a phenomenal spot if your goal is that, or if your idea is that they should be a, an elite team in the NHL. Mm-hmm. And I'll get to like an optimist take maybe later once we go through these signings. But, yeah, I mean, the, the Leafs were a very good team in the NHL this year, and their skaters have gotten slightly worse. 
Yeah. There's reasons for optimism to think that other things will get better. As we said, like the goaltending uh, is, it's never secure, but I think the Leafs have as reasonable a an insurance policy as they could have possibly gotten. That's something. Uh, the power play probably can't get worse. Although now that I've said that, you know, I, I could have just <laughs> cursed it. There, there's reasons for optimism. But again, it, it bears repeating, we're evaluating the Leafs with the idea that this team should be one of the best in the league. That that should be the goal. The goal should be Tampa. The goal is not Montreal mm-hmm. in the sen- you know, in many ways at this point, but mm-hmm. specifically on the ice. The goal is not be a good team with some good part or with some good aspects and a few bad aspects and hope you uh, are on the right side of you know some variance and that things just go your way and that you play well at the right time. Right? You want your average game to be good enough to beat teams. To beat good teams, right? That's what Tampa has done. We said this a couple times. I think it's very good that Tampa has won back-to-back titles for the NHL because the one thing I sometimes get frustrated with with hockey is it feels that we're watching, you know, coin flips. Mm. And it's nice to have a team where we can say, no, they're the best team and they won. And it means something to be the best team. Mm-hmm. Right? So, yeah, that, that should be the goal. Right. right? And we, we've, we've harped on that many times. Um, and this doesn't mean the Leafs have no shot or anything, but this is this is just the reality. We're we're at the point where we don't have uh, we don't have a lot of forward depth when it comes down to it. We how how many players on the Leafs would you say have kind of above average skill levels? I think it might literally be four. In terms of the forwards, yeah, like, yeah. That's... Like, I, in terms of puck skills, I think it's four. I have five with Spezza. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's it's not. Terrific, to be honest. And, you know, this is sort of what happens. But, you, you know, we've talked about, okay, these are the problems that they're confronting. And I think the segues kind of nicely into, okay, what do you do about it? You don't <laughs> have a ton of cap space. Yes. So what do you do to try and build a team that, with a bit of luck, is going to be a contender? Well, you make bets that have a chance of paying out. You try and make a lot of them, ideally. But Michael Bunting is an example of that. There is an upside there where that bet pays out, and you're quite happy. What the Leafs seem to have done, to me anyway, is to think, okay, we can't really afford to staff a bottom six of guys that can really score, or guys that are good complementary contributors. You know, there's no one uh, in the Leafs' bottom six at this point who I think is offensively comparable to a Kasperi Kapitan. You know, Jason Spezza at this point in time... uh, I don't think we can expect them to repeat. And then there's a bunch of other guys who are never going to touch, like Cappy's totals, mm-hmm. you know? And so the conclusion might be, okay, sometimes defensive players are cheaper than offensive players. They're a little less flashy. They're a little more underrated by the market. Maybe we can get a bottom six that is really, really hard to score on. Maybe it wins its minutes, which is great. But even if it doesn't, it causes so little to happen that other teams aren't really putting up margins on them, you know? Uh, and obviously, the gold standard example of this was Phil Deneau for Montreal through the playoffs. Produced very little, but went against other teams' lines and slowed the game down. Philip Deneau, especially played with Brennan Gallagher, is way above what we're talking about here. Yes, and to wit, he signed, what, a... A very big deal with the Los Angeles $6 million Kings. or something like that? It was five or six? Yeah, uh, what is Los... Anyway, we keep sort of referencing what other teams are doing, but Los Angeles' timeline is a bit curious to me. Yeah, it was five and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So good luck with that, guys. But yeah, that kind of brings us to our next signing, which I think was the most confusing one to people. David Kampf. Yes. Two years at $1.5 million per. This is a guy who is 26. He's a center. Most recently with the Chicago Blackhawks. He had one goal. 11 assists, 12 points in 56 games played last year. You're not getting him for his offense. To put it mildly. Yeah, he doesn't have any. So, he looks like the kind of guy co- uh, coaches would love possibly beyond his merits. He's a competent, kind of rangy defensive center, kills a ton of penalties, solid faceoff man who wins them at a decent rate. Takes a lot of them, too. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he led the, uh, the Blackhawks in one faceoffs last year. So, yeah, he's exactly the kind of fourth-line-ish center that team's like. Uh, it's worth noting, you know, he did a lot of penalty killing. Chicago's penalty kill last year was pretty bad. He's 28th in the NHL, so I don't know about that. But let's just say, okay, Chicago was bad defensively in general. Maybe it wasn't Mr. Kemp's fault. You know, this is the kind of thing where I'm certainly not going to say with confidence that he wasn't contributing or he's flawed just based on stats. Um, he is also a real boy in the sense of he's a full-time NHLer, like we talked about Bunting breaking into the NHL four months ago. Kampf mm-hmm. uh, has had four seasons where he played a lot of games. He's over 200 games played for his career. And so I think that he's certainly established, and probably Sheldon Keefe is going to like him because he's going to do things that he sometimes gets mad at Pierre Engvall for not doing. But I also think that the Leafs may be counting on Kampf to be their third-line center. Right, and... The upside, so to speak, of doing so is if Kampf can play as a third-line center, which is essentially the role, as far as I can tell, that he played in Chicago, Mm. um, where he was trusted defensively, he was trusted to take on matchups that uh, are, that were, his opponents were generally having a relatively higher standard on their team in terms of time on ice than his line mates did. I guess that's the kind of most correct way to say it. What I want to emphasize is that that does not mean he's going up against first-liners only, mm. right? It's, it's not a binary thing, but it's just his competition was not predominantly bottom sixers the way it often is for, for players like this. He was an actual matchup center. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you alluded to this. H- how good was Chicago defensively? <laughs> uh, <laughs> not tremendous. Maybe this is the reason why, um, because they might have been asking Kampf to do just too much. But regardless... He has been used, he has been trusted by NHL coaches before. Um, If we do use him, in fact, as the third-line center, Alex Kerfoot can play second or first-line left wing, a role in which he has uh, looked strong in before. Uh, His skill set does lend itself well to uh, being the third guy on a line with, you know, two other brilliant players. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Kerfoot has, you know, a, a guy that, I would, I'll probably have to eat some crow on realistically because I was, I was higher on his ability to play center and to be a good third-line center than he, he's ended up being. I think he ends up being kind of an average third-line center. Um, on the wing, his results in Toronto have generally been good. And, of course, there's huge you know, quality of teammate boost with that, but no, that's not too important for our purposes. And you can say that Kerfoot at second-line left wing or first-line left wing, however you want to call it, is a reasonable kind of allocation of... Uh, resources and, and a player, and you can kind of actually expect good results from from the line that he's on. He'll be he'll do enough to to keep up. I think generally speaking, uh, you could also say that three point five million is probably a bit too much for that. Mm. And I don't I don't think that's off base, 
right? So maybe this frees up Kerfoot for a trade uh, where we can, you know, maybe take back some additional salary, uh, you know, with his salary leaving and, and some of the excess space that we currently have. But yeah, with, with, with Kampf, it's, it's interesting, right? It's, uh, again, I can see the upside, but the upside is, is certainly not enormous. I don't see a world where this guy is, um, I don't know, Riley Nash, like peak Riley Nash or anything like that, right? This is one thing that uh, we should also make clear. There's like this tendency to, among fans of any team, to kind of compare one defensive guy to like the most well-known defensive guy of that archetype mm. or that the most well-known guy of that archetype in the league. So like you see, okay, David Camp's like a defensive center, not much offense. You think, okay, who, who's a guy who does that? Well, Roddy Nash did that. Yeah, but Roddy Nash had like absurd defensive impacts. He was just as bad offensively. But like, you know, it, it's not necessarily the same thing. Similarly, I think this also goes the other way where people describe like Nick Felino, for example, as um, they, they mentally compare him to other like defensive uh, wingers. And they're like, okay, Nick Felino has literally zero offense. It's like, no, he doesn't have zero offense. His offense is average. There's a difference. Right. Right. Um, so, yeah, that, that's just like a, a, a mini rant. With, with, with Kampf, like, don't expect him to, you know, shut down high-end lines. It, 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 again, he was Chicago's matchup center. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, that's... That's the thing is you can see what you might hope for here. You have two guys in Engvall and Mikheyev who are quite good defensive forwards, not a lot of offensive production. You have Kampf, who is a defensive center and who can take face-offs, which was always considered to be a weakness on Engvall's part. And you can easily envision that being a line where very little happens while they're on the ice, except for Mikheyev occasionally going away to not score on a breakaway. And, you know... Maybe that's not such a bad idea. You have this line. None of these guys are making two million a year. They could conceivably win or not badly lose their minutes, maybe against somewhat decent players. That's kind of the upside scenario here. And you say, okay, we're a capped out team. This is the kind of stuff that we got to do is find ways to perform on the cheap. Is camp worth this? I don't know. I, I, kind of wonder if we fell in love with the idea of him a little bit and you look at the results right. and they're so not I, the best but i mean we, i said that you know we, we were past the realm of people who i've seen play five games i've probably actually seen david Kampf play five games because he played a good like he played reasonable amounts of games for the blackhawks but i have zero memory of this dude yeah i did not know who this person was before we signed him i don't know what else to tell you and you know i'm generally sort of aware of people in the NHL to some greater or lesser extent. And, you know, it's compounded by the fact that he's a depth forward who never scored. So, yeah, I think, let's put it this way. Again, I can see the upside here. And, you know, it's not a, a enormous bet. I assume also the fact that we gave him $1.5 million, like there was probably a reason for that. There were apparently other teams bidding on his services. So it makes sense that there was some demand. The price went up. It's just... Again, this is the kind of choice that you have to make when you're capped out, and it's not ideal. Like, there are teams that have third-line centers that score 20 goals. You know? Not most teams, right. and, but really good ones. <laughs> yeah, and it's possible... It's very possible this works out well, right? It's possible yeah. we're sitting here in, like, February, and we're like, wow, bunting has been better than expected. 
comp has been better than expected. We have these deals that now actually look like huge value deals. It's just, it's hard to know that a priori, mm. right? And and that's just part and parcel with it. Unless you get, you know, a Spezza walking into your lap, it, it just, it's unclear. Yeah. It's, so, you know, I, I think to be clear, Kyle Dubas, again, like all these three moves that we've talked about, they're things that make sense for the position that he's in and with his stated unwillingness to trade a core player. Yes. When you with, do with that, Dubas, you lead to these deals. Yeah. With Dubas generally, I mean, I don't, there are NHL GMs who make, even now, moves that I think are, you know, essentially unequivocally dumb. Mm. Right? It, that are just, okay, I, I mean, I, I try and have quite a bit of humility in terms of not purporting to know more than GMs do. But there's some moves where you can see, okay, yeah, that's a disaster waiting to happen. And then, it, you know, lo and behold, it is. Mm. Um, Dubas has, there's, there's basically always reasonable logic that I can see with all of Dubas's moves, even the ones we disagree with. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's the case here. It's just, as we've been kind of beating home, what they say about the state of the team um, is a little bit dismaying to some extent. Or at least, um, it, it's, it, it was in a foreseeable way, but it's still not the most positive thing to, to, to think or to, to see about your team. If you know, There was like a 1% chance that the team was going to be dramatically remade in a way that maybe alleviated some of these issues. And now there's like a, you know, 0.01% chance of that happening, right? It's, it's, it's the, uns- the any uncertainty that existed about what type of team the Leafs would be in terms of how they're allocating the roster, what they're trying to do with the top six and the bottom six that has, I think essentially been gone yeah. and there's logic to what they are doing. It's possible. It works. I, I can even like, maybe it's even more likely than not to work because as much as, as negatively as we feel about the Leafs, they have, four first-line forwards, and two of them are unequivocally elite, you know, really high-end players. Mm. So that's a good basis to start from when it comes to the forwards. Yeah. And, you know, they it's have just, a top-four uh, defense that is finally yeah. good. Yeah. And, I mean, it's worth noting that we've crapped on the forwards. The reason the forwards have gotten worse is because we have consciously reallocated from any depth forward to in order to fund the acquisitions of TJ Brody and Jake Muzzin and, and the like. Yeah, and those, by the way, have worked. and Very well. I think even, you know, we were talking about the expansion draft last time, and I think, you know, it feels like old news at this point, but the Leafs lost Jared McCann shortly after acquiring him, and people were upset about that, but the, the crux of the decision was to protect Justin Hall. And I will say, looking at the deals that almost any defenseman, especially those who shoot right, got in the last couple of days... The decision to protect Justin Hall at $2 million looks better, I think, than it did. You can still yeah. say, look, I think he's being carried by Jake Musson. I think we all think that. But he's a competent player on a pairing that has played hard minutes pretty well. And that costs money. Uh, it was a crazy market for defense. So, you know, there are things to feel good about here. We're just saying if Dubas was going to kind of really change things here, he either had to make a big move which he ruled out, or he had to pull a rabbit out of a hat. He hasn't done that. It wasn't really reasonable to expect that he would. But this is where we are now. So, yeah, anyway. That said, I hope David Kampf goes out and plays the most boring hockey imaginable. I hope that he makes Islanders fans go to sleep uh, next year and winds up with, you know, a whole lot of games where he has neither goals for nor goals against. That feels like the best scenario. Pretty much. Um, one last note on Kampf. Uh, some of the 
other some of the you know are very esteemed and intelligent listeners, which all of you are, to be clear. And handsome. Um, and handsome, and, and and yeah, every every positive uh, yeah. attribute in the world. God bless you all. Uh, you might have thought, okay, he he had one goal, but surely he, you know if you have one goal, your shooting percentage is probably a little bit low, right? Like it can't be that high. Maybe he got a little bit unlucky. Maybe there's some untapped offensive upside. And I'm here to um, piss on that notion. <laughs> Uh, okay, and, and I, I mean, I should not be so declarative for a guy who I've barely seen. But I just want to make the point that he has never had positive uh, shooting impact at the NHL level. If you look at his stats, even going all the way back to his time in the Czech Extra Liga, he wasn't lighting up that, te- that league offensively either. He mm. had, you know, solid offense in that league, but he was not like above point per game or anything like that. And, you know, the Czech League is... Uh, certainly not one of the three best leagues in the world. So I, I think what has gotten him to the NHL is his defensive qualities, perceived or real. Um, there's some evidence that they're real, at least to some extent, that they're not awful. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't think that there is really much untapped offense in Kampf, uh just generally speaking. So, yeah. And if we use him with Engvall and Mikheyev, he's not going to be in a, put in a position where it's going to bloom. You know, yes. like we're using him for this purpose. I do think, you know, if you want to take a more optimistic tack, I think when coaches consistently like players like this, it does mean something. Yeah. I think so. generally coaches have, there are some kind of consistent flaws that coaches have. Mm-hmm. Um, as Mike McCurdy says, they often prefer a player who they know uh, will be bad as opposed to a player who might be bad mm-hmm. in the context of preferring older veterans who, you know, might not that be good, might not be, yeah that good mm-hmm. versus younger players who also might not be that good but also could be good mm-hmm. but the ways that they might not be good are unacceptable as opposed to the ways where older players are not good are very acceptable but you know beyond that i think coaches generally have a decent idea of what's going on right? yes um that sets up a segue <laughs> uh so this next player is coming to the leafs on a pto professional tryout offer it doesn't uh oblige the leafs to offer a contract of any kind Normally, we don't get too into PTOs for that reason. You know, they're not a reflection of what's actually going to happen. It's basically come to training camp and we'll see what happens. But this is for Josh Hosang, who has been much discussed and, you know, who I think is, is almost a symbol for a lot of people. Um, he was a first-round pick, late first-round pick in 2014 by the New York Islanders. And his time in that organization was pretty tumultuous. Um, Hosang said, eventually in an interview... Uh, he felt that he was given less slack, you know, less room than other players to make mistakes. He felt that the the Islanders didn't always give him a chance. And he is multiracial. Hockey's a very white sport. Uh, Hosang also says what's on his mind publicly. And there were definitely questions as to whether he was just getting a bad rap for not being the stereotypical quiet Canadian hockey player. Um, there were a lot of ups and downs in that relationship. He requested a trade in 2019. Organization wasn't able to find one, although they apparently tried. He eventually returned to the AHL. This season, he went to the SHL, Sweden, and he was released after five games by Orobro. They cited the lack of fitness on his part. He went on to play four games for another team. All of this, um, you know, can cloud the fact he has a hell of a lot of talent. He's a very gifted playmaker, strong skater, great vision. And a lot of people have continually looked at Hosang and saying, if someone would give him a proper chance, 
guide him along the path to the NHL a little better instead of just telling him what he's doing wrong, he could be more. He could be great, um, is the opinion of some people. And it's hard to know, um, you know, how things might have been different if he'd been put in a different environment. You know, I can't say. Um, there are people who are excited about this PTO and think it's going to end in a contract. And there are people who say, I don't know what to expect from this. Right. I, and I, I fall into the latter. I don't know what to expect from this. I mean, mm-hmm. this is definitely one of those situations where I think we can kind of say two things can be true. Um, in the sense that I have essentially zero doubt that uh, Josh Hosang's NHL pathway has been made harder because of his background. Mm. Right? I, I, I think that's... Um, um, I think maybe that's quite uncontroversial to say, actually. Uh, because we know that hockey has, you know, massive problems in how it deals with people who do not conform to the stereotypical idea of a hockey player, which, as you alluded to, is, you know, a quiet white Canadian kid, more or less. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, you know, th- there's been more than a handful situa- of situations where Hosang has not covered himself in glory in the sense of doing everything he can for a guy on the fringes to make him self as attractive as possible to these teams right there's been reports of him being late to meetings and things like that and when you're a guy on the fringes you you straight up can't do that right like the, the reality of the nhl is that the slack you get is a completely proportional to how valuable you are as a player and if you haven't proven that value um you need to toe the party line if for the betterment of your career right um it's also worth saying that again as you said he went to the shl and didn't really didn't do much of anything there and again there are many reasons why that could be the case it's certainly not easy or trivial to uproot your life move halfway across the world in the midst of a pandemic to a place where you know you're even more of a minority than you were in north america and even within the context of hockey and you know perform as if everything is usual right that that's not an easy thing to do at the same time you would have hoped to for for hosang's sake that he went there and like lit it up and proved the Islanders wrong, it kind of, or insofar as he could possibly do that in that situation. So, in this case, I mean, a PTO is, is literally the most zero-risk thing in hockey, and the big thing here is I hope this can be part of a situation where Hosang is able to uh, revive his NHL career. As you said, you know, there is talent. Um, at the same time, you know, there, there's a lot of first-round picks who wash out and wash out with basically a lot less fanfare because of because they fit more stand more cleanly into what we expect of hockey players, and, and there's no noise about them, and there's no character concerns about them. And they just wash out just because, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah, I think from this perspective, I, I'm going to be rooting for Hosang. I want him to to do well. The expectations are are none. Just you know, hopefully he can take this opportunity and do something really cool with it. That's, that's all that I really want to see. I don't really expect him or have him penciled into the least plans in any meaningful way um, at all. One other thing with, Ho- with Hosang, and this is like kind of a, an example of a situation where uh, I have no doubt that his, his race and his background played a part in like the fewer he got. Uh, when he wore 66... God, that was such nonsense. It was, there was like so many people who were like angry about him wearing 66 because like how what you think you're Mario Lemieux and 
it's odd because I mean, sixty six is not retired league wide like ninety nine is. Mm-hmm. So, like, there's there's nothing against the rules about it. Sixty six is is a high number, but it, I mean, I think we're past the point of high numbers being a thing because this predated Lamorello. I think it did. Lamorello asked him to change up. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, which is its own set of things. But yeah, like, God. you know, at least Lou Lou is consistently a dick in this regard. <laughs> yeah, that's he does do that to everybody, but still. It, like, yeah. I think certainly the controversy at the time was manufactured nonsense, especially, you know, Mario Lemieux played for the Penguins. He didn't play for the Islanders. Who cares? Also, I don't think Mario Lemieux had a problem with it. No, he didn't. I'm sure he was asked because he's like part owner of the Penguins, right? So he has media availability. Like, I, I don't think Mario Lemieux cared. I think he has other shit to do. Yeah, he's got a lot of things on his mind, I'm sure. And, and you know, people look at stuff like that and they think that's emblematic of all the bullshit that Hosang has faced. And it just, you know, stuff like that, which is clearly kind of nonsense. And so, you know, it, it can be tough to, to sort of wipe all that away and then say, okay, is this guy definitely an NHL player? If he gets a proper opportunity, which I think we agree, he probably hasn't. Or at least, you know, he's had more obstacles put in his way right. than, than the typical player. And the, I don't know. And, um, I mean, this is part of the in- inherent unfairness of, of the NHL is... Mm. Look, it, if the NHL was set up for Josh O'Shane to succeed, uh, I would not be surprised if he could have locked down a roster spot somewhere and had a career. But the problem is the NHL exists for teams to try and maximize their wins. And when you're a guy on, on the fringes, you don't get the first choice of, oh, let's make sure everything is set up for this guy. Mm-hmm. Right? Let's make sure this guy is put in the best position to use his talents. Because if you're, unless your talents are truly game-breaking... Um, you know, there's a lot of other guys who are in that pecking order ahead of you, right? The exact same thing is true of, of Jeremy Bracco, who, by the way, has, you know, way, way, way more significant character concerns than Josh Hosang ever did, mm. right? In terms of the stuff that has been alleged or connected to Bracco. Yeah, and is now playing in Europe. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, the, like, it's... that That's the tough part about making it as an NHL. It's very, very hard to do. I mean, I have no doubt... As I said, Hosang's path was almost certainly made harder by his background. But there's also the reality that, you know, sometimes players with all this talent aren't able to put it together and, and bust for, for reasons that are also, you know, unrelated to <clears throat> to those difficulties. Yeah. So in this case, I'm just hoping Hosang, you know, does as well as he can with this opportunity. And I, I, I'm looking forward to watching him play in the preseason. It'll add some intrigue. Yeah, he certainly... You'd really hope when the preseason comes, he should easily be one of the most talented guys on the ice in a lot of those games where you're not getting full NHL rosters yet. And, you know, that would be a great chance for him to kind of show what he's got and play his way into a contract. Um, so, yeah, that's that's something to look out for. And again, if this pans out into something, it's good for him. It's good for the Leafs. There's a potential here for both sides to help each other. I'm just, you know, I don't know what to expect. So... Let's hope that it works out. Um, I kind of paired, I grouped, uh, these depth signings together. Right, and there's some that are yeah. no longer like included as well, right? Like, um, like we signed Brett Sini as well. That's yeah. more of an AHL one. We signed Pavel Gogolev from the Marlies. Yeah. Uh, but we can kind of just lump all of these together as these are guys probably going to be on the Marlies. I hope. I hope they're not playing important roles for the Leafs. Yeah, for the most part, I think that's true. Uh, Curtis Gabriel is sort of an enforcer type. Seems like a nice guy. Could kind of end up in that bunch 
of players who are competing for bottom six roles on the Leafs. There are going to be a lot of them. There always are. If the Leafs decide they want someone to fight at some point, Gabriel... Who is not named Wayne Simmons. Yep. And so Gabriel can do that. Um, I don't expect him to be a regular player for Toronto. But, you know, Sabarin played a couple games for the Leafs last season. Um, And and, um, Gabriel is, as far as I can tell... You know, however many NHL games he's had, 90% of them, he has been the least played forward on his team. Mm. Right? Yeah, like, like, like there, there's no, you know, delusions about what he is. Yeah, he's sort of a classic. He is a 12th forward type. at best. Yeah, exactly. Um, Michael Amadio, less of an enforcer type, seems like kind of a depth center. But again, there are just enough guys in front of him that you think we probably won't see too much of him unless there are a bunch of injuries in a row. So let's hope not. It's not impossible. And all of these guys are in the range where if somebody has a really good training camp, maybe, just wouldn't bet on it. Because there are so many names in terms of, uh, obviously, Jason Spezza, Wayne Simmons, Adam Brooks, Pierre Engvall, Ilya Mikhaev. There are all of these people who are kind of ahead of this class of players, to say nothing of Dick Robertson. And so I'm not sure we'll see a ton of them. But yeah. Uh, there were also a couple of defensemen, Alex Biega and Carl Dahlstrom. And I think that those are interesting as much as anything for what they say about Timothy Liljegren, who has to be getting kind of annoyed, at least I would, because Liljegren at this point has established himself as a pretty good AHL defenseman and would seem to be knocking on the door of the NHL. He did play a few games there that didn't go great, but he's ripe for another try and he's 22. And the organization seems to keep acquiring people to put in front of him or who seem like threats to his job. And you can say, well, they're kind of insurance against him not working out, and that's fine. But you look at the Leafs defense depth chart now. You have the top four established. You have Travis Dermott and Rasmus Sandin. We're kind of ahead. And then you have Liljegren, and he was probably tracking towards being the seventh defenseman. But now you have a guy like Alex Biega who is a veteran. He's 33 years old. Um, He's a right-shooting penalty killer. He's been a 70 in Detroit. He can spend most of the year in the press box, and, you know, nobody's worried about his development now. He's a good pro. He can do that job. And so Liljegren has to be thinking, that probably ends with me being bumped back down to the AHL for another year. At the same time, like, I I think Liljegren would probably, yeah, if you asked him honestly, he'd probably be like, yeah, mildly annoyed. Mm -hmm. If Liljegren at this point, cannot show himself to be considerably better than a mm-hmm. guy who was the 70 on Detroit, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, again, this is, this, is, this is the camp thing with Chicago, but, like, emphasize more. Detroit's blue line. Yeah. Nick Listrom ain't walking through that door. You know, Brian <laughs> Rafalski ain't walking through that door. Yeah. Right? So if he can't be better than, than um, the Biega over the course of a preseason, that's a sign in of itself. Right, he like Lilligren, It's it's we've said this before. It's put up or shut up time for him in the sense that, you know, if you you have to take a job, right? This is a, a Babcockism that you know he's a persona non grata at this mm-hmm. point for very valid reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is one of the things of his that he said that I I do believe where it's like you got to show up and take a job. Right. Right. Nothing no one's giving you a job. You. Yeah, you have to beat somebody. Uh, you have to show that you're better than somebody. And it's true that if Lilligren had made this undeniable, he would be playing, and he hasn't yet. Right, and the reality is Sandine has 
and I'm, you know, not incredibly high on Sandine as, like, a top four option immediately or anything like that, but Sandine has, like, made it more clear that there's some separation between him and, and Biega and, you know, Dahlberg. Yeah. Is that his name? Dahlberg? Dahlstrom. Dahlstrom, sorry. My, yeah. my apologies. But, um, but when Travis Dermott broke in, same thing. He made it <laughs> very difficult not to play him. And he's had the same problem a rung up where he keeps looking like he's top four-ish caliber or like he maybe should get some time in that role. But there are too many people ahead of him whose job he can't take. Right, who, who, who are, like, clearly better than yeah. him. And, right? and, you know, that's sort of what it means. And you say, okay, are you really a top four talent if there are four guys ahead of you who are better? And it's, like, you know, maybe in some cases you're blocked. But that's sort of how it works. And so I do find it interesting also that the Leafs were apparently bidding on this enormous and maybe a bit dubious results-wise, right defenseman named Yanni Hankanpa, who was the subject of a bidding war, which is kind of crazy. Remember I was talking about how the contracts for defensemen got kind of bananas? Well, here's an example. He signed in Dallas for three years at 1.5. Um, apparently, this is according to reporter Eric Engels, Toronto made him that same offer. And he just chose Dallas instead, for whatever reason. That's fine. But if Toronto is looking for these guys, again, they're saying, we want to bump everybody down a rung. You're not signing a guy three years at 1.5 million because you expect him to play in the AHL. And so it kind of suggests to me that the Leafs aren't totally content with the bottom of their defense group. You know, that right. contract well, offer and, this, and also Biega and Dahlstrom. This is Dubas's MO, right? Like sign mm -hmm. a raft of guys for basically the bottom three forward spots, the bottom... Uh, two defenseman spots and let them fight it out. And, mm -hmm. you know, we'll pay you a nice salary in the Mar uh, for the Martys if we need to. Yeah, but, right? you know, um, that, that's how it goes. And I th that's been the practice, again, since Babcock came in. This even predates Dubas, but Dubas has definitely embraced it. Um, yeah, and, you know, I think that's fine. I think everyone would kind of prefer it if Dermot and Sandine were the, the third pair most of the time and they just took the job and ran away with it. But again, you know, as you said, if they're losing that job to Alex Biega, that's a problem. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that's kind of what we're looking at at the bottom of the roster. Uh, and again, we're still waiting to see if the Leafs make one more big-ish move that bumps everybody down and even takes, you know, Michael Bunting into the third line role or something like that. Um, but, I, you know, I think kind of to, to sum up here, we've talked about all of these moves being a reflection of the situation the Leafs are in. And I think that that's, that's apt. These are the kind of budget plays that you make. He's doing a lot of things that make a lot of sense as a guy that does not have a lot of cap space. Right. And this is the kind of a very conventional approach to the situation, which does not mean it's bad. It just means that it's conventional. And the, the convention and what we expected was, yeah, the Leafs are probably going to be a slightly worse team than last year when it comes to skater talent. Mm -hmm. And that appears to be born out now this was all the signings right so but uh just before we transition to something else mm -hmm. okay so before we go maybe we should quickly make an optimist case for the leafs because we spent you know the better part of an hour kind of being like yeah shit sucks <laughs> and you know shit does suck you're right like, i'm gesturing broadly at the world as i say this mm -hmm. um but there is room for optimism and I think what it comes down to, the optimist approach to the Leafs, the optimist view of the Leafs this year, is that the Leafs were a very, very good regular season team. 
and in some ways a very good playoff team in the sense that they, they outscored Montreal. It's rare to lose a playoff series when you outscore a team. And that can happen for, you know, whatever, whether you want to call it cluster luck or clutch or anything like that. Um, you know, the Leafs did outscore Montreal and they did lose. But it, it wasn't as if they shit their pants and lost in a really embarrassing um, and non-competitive fashion. Right. Right? So the Leafs are a good team. I think that is undeniable, especially in the regular season. Mm-hmm. They still have their four most important forwards, right? Um, they still have their four most important defensemen. They still have the goalie who, you know, did a lot of the work uh, to, to help them last year. They still have the coach who, you know, for all our faults with Keith related to the power play, related to um, weird choices at inopportune times, the reality is he's created a system that seems to work for the most important players on the ice, right? It seems to work for Austin Matthews, seems to work for Morgan Riley. And that's important. That's the, the most important thing, really. There's room for upside, right? Um, you can expect expect Campbell to maybe regress a little bit, but as we said, there's a reasonable uh, insurance policy for behind him. The power play, again, I, I'm tempting fate by saying it can't be that bad, again. It probably will not be that bad, again. Mm-hmm. There, there seem like there should be easy fixes to this. I've been saying that for a long time. I hope I'm going to be right eventually. Um, but, you know, you just kind of the, the plexiglass principle, it's probably more likely to get better than worse. Yeah, although I found it fascinating. Manny Malhotra is still here. Yeah, I... I... So, <laughs> I feel like that's even the Leafs fired. saying, like, it's, it was weird that it was this bad. Like, they're just yeah. saying, it just can't be. And I also find myself thinking that. I'm like, it, surely it can't be that bad, but... Yeah, I mean, assistant coaches have been fired for much less. Yes. Yeah. Right, including Leafs assistant coaches. Like, Jim Hitter, specifically. Yeah, man. Like, Jim Miller put together the best power play in hockey for two years, and then half a year it went cold, and they were like, you know what, I think we've seen enough. <laughs> yeah, it, it's weird. Um, uh, and one of the other things that might be worth mentioning is that the Leafs have the option, for the first time in a while, to actually bank a little bit of cap space if they want to. Yes. And, you know, if they do say, okay... We can't get anything. Let's say Thomas Tatar goes somewhere else. They don't find a trade that's uh, especially profitable for the team. They say, okay, uh, we can run with a little bit of cap space. It's not ideal. But that means, conceivably, by the trade deadline, if you keep sitting on this space and build it up, you can acquire a quite considerable player. You know, you can be in the bidding for, you know, whatever uh, home run free agent is available as a rental. And, you know, I think we're, we've just been burned rather badly on rentals, so maybe it's a little painful to think about. But... We're like 0 for 5. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, there are going to be people who say maybe we should instead trade Morgan Riley at the deadline. That's not going to be how we operate, I'll tell you that. But Yeah, I would be, unless the Leafs are, like, non-competitive at the deadline, and by that I mean, like, clearly out, like, everything has gone wrong, we're clearly not even close to the playoffs. Um, I think the most likely outcome is we keep Morgan Riley. Um, we then we, we extend them in the offseason. Also, if the Leafs are clearly non-competitive out of the playoffs to the point where Morgan Riley is the kind of person you would be looking to trade, I think Kyle Dubas has been fired. That's like, a real possibility. Like, yeah. Dubas is, does not have infinite rope at this point. Yeah. And it's, yeah, yeah. actually, he has, he, I should be more accurate. He has actually an incredibly finite amount of rope. <laughs> like, it's, it's, it's especially finite. I can measure it. I do not think that Kyle Dubas will still be employed for the following season if the Leafs don't win a playoff round. I just don't. 
And, you know, that... I, I guess you can say, you can always say, well, what if they draw the Tampa Bay Lightning? And it's a really hard-fought seven-game series. And the refs have obviously been bribed. And, you know, something like that. But it's like, this is it. You gotta do something. And last season was already pretty close to... You needed to win. Now it's just like, okay, everybody's on borrowed time now. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one other element of the Optimus case that I just wanted to mention. We don't really have a good read on exactly how weird last year's divisions were. Yeah. Um, I think it's fair to say the North Division was, I'm going to say aggressively mediocre. I don't think it was like full of teams that were all trash. It's just it had one team that was legit pretty good in the regular season in the Leafs, and then a bunch of teams that were like okay to bad. Yeah, there was um, there was no elite team. Yeah, uh, exactly. And so it's possible the Leafs stats looked better than they should have. But if you want to feel good, you can say the Leafs were top five in goals percentage, expected goals, scoring chances. They, you know, they looked like a bona fide contender by those numbers. And I think a lot of people are inclined to scoff when they say, okay, how, you know, look how much good those numbers did us when push came to shove against Montreal. But... We said we were going to try and make the optimist case here. And you can say that was, after all, 56 games. They played them against real NHL teams for the most part. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to make a joke about Vancouver there. Uh, but basically, there are reasons to think this team is good. And look, if you ask me, will this team make the playoffs next year? I don't know for sure, but I would say probably. Um, it's going to be harder in the Atlantic than it was in the North. I think that's unequivocal. But, yeah, you, you know, there are things to hope for. And there's the classic, I'm going to call it the, the Washington hope, which is just that if you hang around long enough, you get hot at the right time and you go on a run. You know, they won with a team that did not look all that impressive statistically after it, years where they were good. It, it's kind of crazy to think about now, but Washington's made it past the second round once. Yeah. In the Ovechkin era. Yeah. I, I mean, And they won the cup. Yeah. <laughs> take, take advantage of it. <laughs> and if they hadn't been, they'd beat the San Jose Sharks. But... Uh, yeah, so, you know, they have a good base. They're in a better position than they were for 15-odd years. Yeah, and there's a ton so, of teams who would love to have these problems, frankly. Yeah, you know, so to the extent they're luxury problems. It's just what's happened is we've naturally set expectations of this team is going to seriously contend, and they haven't done it yet. And mm-hmm. so the, the pessimism that's sort of infused this podcast and, you know, many of ours before it, is that we're, we're holding them to that high bar now, and then they haven't cleared it. So, yeah, I, like, I guess I would sum up by saying, you know, all of the moves that Dubas made here make sense to me. Some of them, I think, are good. The worst I can say about them is that maybe he gave David Camp a little bit too much money, mm-hmm. and it's not on a scale where either I'm sure that he did or that it's a huge deal if he did do so. It's just you can see the strain at the salary cap through a lot of these moves and that's in the back of our of our heads so yeah you know by no means all bad but this team has constraints and cal dubas is trying to to work within them and we'll see how successful he is pretty much um okay so i think that's just about it for us you can catch all of mine and and fuleman stuff at pensionplanpuppets.com and of course there's tons of coverage right now about all the the signings that the leafs have made if you were like us and had no idea who these guys are well ppp is a great way to get up to speed on them um because we you know we've certainly learned a lot from from reading the articles that, that have been up there
Uh, you can also uh, check me out on Twitter. Thank you all for listening.